0: Welcome. You are listening to intentional conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Now, if you have been with us, you know that I always take a moment to read the bio of each of our guest co-hosts. This is important to me because even though some of you may already be familiar with our guest co-hosts, I like to make sure that we are centering the accolades, the credentials, the experience in which our guest co-hosts are showing up to our podcast conversation. So this week will be no different, and I am so pleased to be able to welcome today Jaya Saxena. And I'm going to read her bio at this time. Jaya is a lawyer and diversity and inclusion strategist with almost 20 years of advocacy and professional development expertise. She currently serves as the director of diversity, equity and inclusion at Spencer Stewart, one of the world's leading global executive search and leadership consulting firms. Previously, she was the director of DEI at the Brattle Group, a global economics advisory firm. She is recognized DEI leader with experience operating in the professional services sector in both the law firm White and & Case and the consulting space Brattle In these roles, she created the internal programming, systems, and infrastructure necessary to welcome, retain, and develop underrepresented talent. Her experiences in developing novel diversity programming within professional services organizations known for legacy habits and customs. As the most senior diversity leader at Brattle, Jay has spent the most recent chapter of her career implementing DEI strategy across Brattle's matrix structure while advising its C-suite on how to ensure the gains are sustainable and long-lasting. She brings an international lens to her work, having operated with the Global Scope while at White and Case, as well as Brattle. Jaya is active in the community, having served on numerous boards. She earned her JD from the University of North Carolina School of Law and graduate and undergraduate degrees from Carnegie Mellon University. Jaya also has an executive certificate in strategic diversity and inclusion management from Georgetown University and a graduate certificate in health and wellness coaching from the Maryland University of Integrative Health. She is a mom to two spirited and delightful young girls, nine and five, on the weekend. She enjoys mocktails and cocktails at her family bar, the Fountain Inn, in Georgetown, D.C. So I'm often in D.C. I have to make sure that I check that out. So if you would, podcast community, you know what to do. Find those accolades, those words of affirmation. Let's let Jaya know how much we welcome her being here with us today. Whatever kind of emojis that feel appropriate, let's get those going into the chat. And um, I am just so excited. I always tell my guest co-hosts that you could be anywhere on a Friday at 11 Eastern Standard Time, doing so many things, especially knowing how busy your schedule is, reading all that you're involved in. But the fact that you said yes to us means a lot to us, Jay. And so we certainly want to make sure that um, we give you a chance to feel welcomed as we start our, I know, rich conversation that's going to ensue today. So I want to give you a chance to greet this audience in your own way. And so I will share, though, that one of the things we often like to hear from our guest co-hosts when they're starting out to share is something that we would not know about you from reading your bio or from looking at your LinkedIn profile. Welcome, Jaya.
1: Thank you so much. I am so thrilled to be here today. Thank you so much for all the for the warm welcome and all of the in the chat feature. Um, So thank you so much, Dr. Nika, for your leadership, for your work in this space and for the opportunity to be in conversation with you and to all of you for joining. um, Really, really appreciate that. Um, And I appreciate your kind introduction. Um, I will share a bit more about myself personally, because it really is our background and our lived experiences that shape our approach to ourselves, others Mm -hmm. and the world. And so I uh, will start off by sharing that I am a cisgender woman um, and a member of the Asian diaspora, which is extremely diverse. Here in the United States, with at least uh, 20 countries in East and Southeast Asia and the Indian subcontinent represented. More specifically, I am South Asian. I am the daughter of immigrant parents from India. Um, As with many immigrant families, my parents left everything they knew back home Mm -hmm. to come here in the 1970s in search of a better life uh, for my sister and I. I am a Gen Xer raised with one sibling. Um, in the DMV area. I know a number of you uh, who joined us are from the DMV or are there right now. So um, from that area, uh, as you mentioned, I'm the daughter or the mother of two daughters um, who are now 10 and six. Um, I am also a self-proclaimed ambivert with a mix of extrovert and introvert features. I don't think we talk enough about personality and how that shapes us And our experience in the workplace, Um, although I'll probably say have a tendency towards introversion Um, and you. So that's, I guess, and I, you know, I'll say this because I listened to another um, podcast, a podcast the other day where the woman introduced herself by sharing that she's 50. I am 45. And when I heard her share her age, I said, wow, that is so lovely because I don't think in this country we embrace age. So I, for the longest time, probably didn't share my age. And so I'm going to embrace this journey, this part of my life and say that I am a Gen Xer at 45.
0: I love all of that. There's so many similarities. So we have to talk about the ambivert piece because I too classify myself as ambivert and I want this audience to understand what that is for those that may be hearing it for the first time or holding some curiosity. So let's make sure we circle back to that. And and I love that you brought the age to the conversation. You know, why is it that we uh, often are reluctant to share our age? And I have to say, I've I don't normally give my introductions with giving my age, but I'm feeling, I'm feeling inspired today because of you, Jaya. So I am 47 and I am Dr. Nico White and I am proud to be 47.
1: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Yes, Jen Exter as well here. So that, that is great. And I love the fact that you gave emphasis to your South Asian, um, you know, heritage. I think that's so critically important important and particularly the fact that that population is so vast and we have to make sure we continue to educate around that and that is Mm -hmm. part of um, one of the reasons we were really excited to have you on today is to bring that perspective that additional learning that can help us as we're building up our cultural intelligence and humility and so thank you so much so should we talk maybe just jump right into the ambivert first before we start thinking about absolutely absolutely Absolutely. So how does that impact you and, and your professional and your personal life? And, and, and how do, are you defining what an ambivert is?
1: Well, so most of you probably heard about extroversion and introversion. And I think, and ambiverts, which is sort of less, less discussed, but I'll, I'll share about that in a minute. And I think there are a lot of perceptions and misperceptions about what it means to be an extrovert versus an introvert. I think there's yes. a lot of stereotypes that if you're an introvert you're a wallflower, you don't like to talk, you don't yeah. have friends, you you don't you're antisocial and that has nothing to do with it. It's truly about where you derive your source of energy from. And so extroverts tend to derive energy from people and their surroundings and introverts tend to after a long day spending all day connecting and talking to people sort of draw energy from within. And so it's really about where do you draw your source of energy from? And then ambiverts are sort of in between. They're leaning sort of both ways, which is how I think I am, but again, with tendencies towards introversion. Um, And I think that it certainly impacts one's experience in the workplace, because quite frankly, I think our society has a positive bias towards extroversion. I think as a society, we tend to favor, even when we think about leadership and what that looks like, people who are very outspoken, vocal, talk a lot, even if not what they're saying always makes the most sense. Yes. yes. <laughs> now I think there's a lot of power in quiet leadership. And um, those of you may have read the book Quiet by Susan Kane, really empowering people to own their ambiversion, introversion, extroversion, we need all of it in the workplace and in society. Mm. Um, So that's just a little bit about how I sort of view it.
0: I I so love that you brought this to the conversation because it's not something we talk about as often in this broad scope of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but it very much is a dimension of diversity that I think um, is is really important. I think it also helps us to um, really check our bias when we start to make judgments around someone that we are classifying as being an introvert or an extrovert, because you are right. I do agree. I think that a lot of times that extroversion way of showing up is something that people perceive as um, superior to being introvert. And like you, I love the language of quiet leadership. I think that being slow to speak, being very thoughtful um, is just as um, important as someone who is just ready to, to chime in every single time, right? Without really that introspection. Um, so I do want to place into the chat, you mentioned a, a resource. So we love resources here at the Intentional Conversations podcast, but you mentioned Quiet by Susan Kane. So if my someone on my team could source that and place Send into the chat for anyone that may be interested. I I would I would love for us to all have value of considering that as an additional tool. Uh, so um, I say that I'm an ambivert because I am very much in both camps. There are a lot of times where um, surprisingly to a lot of people, I just want to be in a corner by myself, quiet, no, no, no TV, no background noise, nothing, just present with myself. I value those moments. I do. And when I particularly feel the need to have that time, is after i have done like a podcast after i have done like a public speaking you know engagement my team can tell you i am usually like i mean I'm, I'm always i always prepare myself on the front end because usually after a keynote people people they're lined up they want to talk with you they want to meet with you they want to engage with you and that is great but i have learned over the years that i can't have like too many of that going on in in a given mm-hmm. time period i need to spread them out i need to make sure that there's time for me to retreat and to recharge with just quiet it. And so, yeah. um, yeah, some folks may not have known that about me, but that is very true. So <laughs> I do classify as an ambivert. That was a fun thanks conversation. For sh- well, thanks
1: say, for letting thank you. Us go I mean, there. I, I wanted to add one quick point. Yes. Um, so thanks for sharing that about your background as well. You know, and I would just note that there's an added layer of complexity because we all have, you know, I want to just uh, tie this to intersectionality for a moment. Yes, please do. We can't talk about these aspects of our identity in silos. And so for me, it's a very interesting experience being an ambivert slash introvert as a woman, as a woman of color, as an Asian, like all of these layers of identity make it much more nuanced and complex in terms of my lived experience in society, but also in the workplace. And we'll talk that, we'll probably talk about that a little bit later in terms of not the model minority myth and how that plays into the experience of Asians, because one aspect of the model minority myth is Asians being very quiet and reserved, mm-hmm. and so it's an int- it's really interesting when you start to think about these issues with from a lens of intersectionality as well.
0: No, I love that. And, you know, I think that it's appropriate for us to go to go right there. So as you mentioned, yes, many Asians have been stereotyped, generalized as model minorities. And so I want us to unpack what that is. I don't want to assume that everybody showing up to this conversation has heard that before and they know what that means. But so I want to talk about what that means, but also has that stereotype had any effects on your personal life? And if so, Mm -hmm. how and how do you navigate it?
1: Great, great question. So let's first define what we mean by the model minority myth, right? So, and again, some of you may already be familiar with this term, but if you're not, it's essentially based on stereotypes and it perpetuates a particular native narrative about Asian Americans. For example, the idea that all Asian children are math whizzes or Mm -hmm. are um, musical geniuses, neither of which I have ever been, um, or that uh, Asians are polite and quiet and rule followers who we keep our heads down, we get the work done. And I quite frankly think that has absolutely led to some people thinking that we have a higher level of success than others. When re- in reality, when you look at senior levels of leadership, Yeah, Asians are not represented nearly as they are at lower levels. And there's a lot of research and writing. McKinsey does a ton of research around women in the workplace, but also the Asian experience in the workplace. Um, And it's not only pervasive, but it's very problematic. Uh, And I think it's problematic for a number of reasons. You know, one, it really erases the diversity within the Asian diaspora. It makes it seem like we are this one monolith of a community. As opposed to individuals with our own unique differences, um, who and we should be valued and recognized and differentiated from one another. Um, it, it perpetuates the myth of Asians being perpetual foreigners. Um, yeah. and I have a very recent um, story around that if we have time, but this notion that we don't belong here that we are foreigners, um, that we are othered. Um, and I think another area where it's very problematic is it suggests that racism against Asian Americans doesn't exist. We mm. are doing so well. Yeah. In, quotes, right. um, in spite of systemic inequities and discrimination. And we've all seen that post COVID, you know, with yeah. all of the anti violence and hate, we've seen that that's certainly not the case. And then finally, the other thing that I th- think is really frustrating is it pits people of color against one another. Yes. And we could right, it it pits us against one another, which means we can't truly be liberated as a community of people of color of underrepresented people. So I'll say that's sort of how I define it, uh, Nika. And Mm -hmm. if you want, I can share how it's uh, affected my professional life. I don't know if there's anything you want to sort of react to around that or add.
0: No, know, I, I really would love to keep you on the path of, of sharing because you are really bringing forth some valid points that I think this community needs to, needs to be able to understand and have time to process. So please do go, go and share how this has impacted you professionally.
1: I and mean, I think for me, it's most impacted um, my, me having to define my own leadership style and realize that there is no singular way to be a successful leader and to appreciate all of my strengths and really redefine for me, what does leadership look like? Yeah. Um, there was a New York Times article, I think a few years ago, and it asked people sort of how do you, if you had a paint to picture, draw a picture of a leader, what would you, what who would come to mind? And of course it was sort of a white, cis, heterosexual male who is outspoken, like all of these characteristics that are very much not me. I mean, you can see that when you, when you look at me. And so I think I've had to really think about and I you know I ha, I am generally non-confrontational. I can be reserved. Um and I've really had to think about how can instead of conforming to the, our dominant culture's standards of leadership how can I become the leader that I want to be? Um I've worked very hard, at, you know, communicating clearly and competently, like all of these things because Um, But in a way that is true to myself. So I think for me, the way this has impacted me the most is really needing to redefine what it means to be a successful leader. And what does that mean for me, given the way I present, the way I look, my identity, who I am, sort of living in that truest, most possible way, because I think then we can really be our best selves.
0: Yeah, That is so good. I don't know if I've ever been a part of a conversation where we were talking about um, different stereotypes and specifically like the model minority and how it has impacted someone's view of, of their leadership and how to lean into Um, a leadership model and style that best fit them. And I say that with great recognition that I think so many of us, when we think about leadership, we automatically gravitate to what many in society view as model leadership, which is the Eurocentric, the Mm white-centered way of being professional and leading. And so I love that you are empowering and challenging all of us to kind of redefine leadership for ourselves and not necessarily try to put us in a box based upon what society has said Mm -hmm. leadership should look like, feel like, taste like. Absolutely. And so that is is
1: really good. Um, And you know, I will also say, Nika, it very much goes to also relates to professionalism. And I don't know if you or others saw a post I did on LinkedIn recently, where I shared my beautiful new tattoo Yes. Which I'm going to show your audience here. It is beautiful. And, <laughs> thank you, but it was this whole notion of, and it, it's very much related to leadership, which is, you know, what does it mean to be professional? Yes, and very much professional. And I'm so I'm only sort of footnoting this because I think it's related to this conversation, which is, you know we typically in the United States have defined professionalism based on dominant culture's notion of what it means to be professional. Right. And how can we, you know, A, what does it mean when we talk about professionalism? What behaviors are we actually talking about? Can we focus less on appearance and more so on competency skills and behaviors? So I think it's all very much related, but this was also just a moment for me to share my new tattoo with you.
0: (laughs) Well, it's beautiful. I do remember seeing that post. And by the way, we are going to show your LinkedIn information to the chat for those in this community that may not be following you. I do encourage you to do so. You do produce some wonderful content. Um, Yeah. And, you know, this audience has heard me talk about the professionalism thing before, because like for a lot of Black women, how that shows up, it's like the way in which we like to wear our hair, right? For so long. And even still now, there are many many um, leaders, individuals that do not value natural hair, um, that's grown from Black women's heads as being professional. And so I think that, you know, your point of there being these nuances that are unique to different, you know, groups of of people of color is important for us to make sure we're having those conversations so that we aren't kind of lumping, you know, people of color all together, but we are talking about these specific and unique challenges that um, exist. And so uh, thank you for that. And by the way, this is kind coming up for me because I saw this um, circulating on um, social media this week. And I don't know if you saw it, Jaya, but I want to get your thoughts on it. But it was about AI and
1: how. Oh, my gosh, Nita.
0: I know I so anyway so for those who haven't seen it and I don't even know where to kind of like direct my team to try to source this I think I saw it because someone in my network had shared it but there was an Asian woman who had asked submitted her picture through some kind of AI tool and basically asked the tool to make her look more professional and they gave her blue eyes they changed her hair color I mean it was like they did everything Mm -hmm. to make the person this Asian woman look white and What a big disappointment. I mean, we know oh that goodness. AI is still challenged. We know that there is a lot that we have to be careful of, especially when we talk about intersecting um, DEI lens with the work of AI, while it's very powerful, there's there's so much to be cautious of. And that's one example that surfaced this week that to me seems to relate to this conversation of um, professionalism. And so yep, I wanted absolutely. to bring it up. Yeah,
1: and if anybody- No, recall, and that's the next frontier, right? The yes. AI- G chat like GPT all like all oh, GPT chat all of this is the next yes. frontier and um, it really does raise this issue of bias in, in AI, and I, I very, it was very disturbing. I mean, if, I know it's yes. going in the chat at the, the link, too. Yes. You should all check it out. Yes. It was
0: disturbing. If my colleague was able to find that. Yeah, absolutely. So this is somewhat related, but I want you to talk a little bit more about why it is important for everyone to be included in the race conversations and not just Black and white. I am I'm keenly aware that oftentimes when part of the division is that when people hear diversity, equity, and inclusion, immediately they think Black. Black and white. And I think mm-hmm. that there's a lot of merit to that in the sense of yep. how the country has, um, you know, the race constructs and how they came to be, right? But I'm also a believer, just like you have expressed today, that there are so many different dimensions of diversity, and there are lots of systems of oppression that are impacting so many different um, dimensions of diversity, including different races and ethnicities. And so just from your vantage point, what do you think is the downfall of um, people automatically gravitating to Black and white instead of maybe this broader lens when race is discussed?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. No, that's a really great question. And I mean, I'll first say, I'll preface this by saying, you know, I think race in the United States, you know, I do want to be clear that I'm, when I speak about race in particular now, I'm talking about it in the US sort of yes. context. Um, But it is the third rail in this country. It's probably the most difficult subject to discuss. And I think that's probably because it begins with an individual interrogating their own racialized identity. And um, my impression has been that it was really only after George Floyd's murder in 2020 that people started to talk more about race in the workplace in particular. Um, So in the United States, my experience has been that it does tend to be, as you've noted, Nika, a black and white discussion. And there's obviously, as you noted, there are reasons for that. We have a very, very painful history in this country around race and slavery and oppression. So it makes sense that the conversation has centered around the black and white experience. And so I understand that. And the impact on me has been that especially as I was growing up as a South Asian woman woman, not knowing what my role was in these conversations. And all too often I would find myself just being silent in discussions around race. And it's um, and it's interesting because there are complex issues surrounding race race relations for people in the Latinx community, in the Asian yeah, communities. Yeah. So I think I've wondered over the years, how do we engage in this conversation in a way where all different perspectives can be shared? It's not an either or. You know, we we can have the conversation recognizing our historical context in the United States and what is the role for people of other identities, be it Latinx, be it um, Asian, to what, what is their role in these conversations? And so as an Asian woman, you know, for example, I think about the complexity of the relationship between Asian and black communities, yeah, where there's been this portrayal of long-standing conflict between these two groups, even where there's also been longstanding solidarity. So yes. I think, um, you know it's just to me, it's um, it's I think the mo- and going back to the model minority myth, I think it's that's another reason why Asians have often been left out of the conversation because we we're not seen as having an, a problem with race or racism. Right. So, I think it gets quite complex and the waves impacted me the most is really trying to understand probably only in the re, in like the last 15 years, what is my role in the conversation because I don't think it does anyone service for me to be silent.
0: Yes, absolutely. It does not. Yeah, silence is a message too. I often talk about that and um, we have to I think that our voice is the best way for us to show up as allies, for us to make sure that we're centering. Um, the perspectives that often do not find its way into conversations where decisions are being made to impact those populations. You know, something that just occurred to me is that when we talk about, you know, stereotypes and bias, and I'm putting this in the context of like the model minority, some may sit back and think, well, what are you complaining about? If, If there's like this notion that people believe that you are superior and you're not having to address those issues, what are you complaining about? And what you're saying is that, yes, it causes people to perceive that we don't we aren't impacted by systems of oppression. And I want Mm -hmm. to just remind us that bias goes both ways. We can be biased for something and biased against something. And so oftentimes we just gravitate to the bias that creates the harm. But what we don't realize is that if we are so in favor of like one particular group that we are always given that group the opportunities, then we're leaving out a population of people that are just as deserving of being in the consideration set. And so I, I don't want us to just think about bias from a standpoint of having um, you know, these stereotypes or these prejudices, but also let's think about how we gravitate towards people who are like us. And that can be a challenge as well and just as harmful.
1: So I keep to Nika, can I can I also add one other point, Nika? You keep yeah. making me think things that are like yeah, that are of popping course up you can. in my head. Um one of the things I was for me, the other thing that has been really significant in my journey over the past 10 to 15 years has been recognizing as a South Asian woman with how I am privileged and how I am marginalized so I think yeah. each one of us has aspects of our identity that give us privilege so for me it's certainly um, my socioeconomic background the fact that I have a law degree um, the fact that um, gosh higher education you know I'm just I now I'm, I'm having a blank but aspects yeah. of my identity that give me privilege there are also being heterosexual, that gives me privilege. Yeah, absolutely gives me pleasure um, or privilege rather. And then the marginalization is about um, being a woman and being a woman of color and other aspects. And so for me, it's been how recognizing how I carry both in one at one time. Um, and how can I use that privilege to support, benefit, uplift, empower those who don't have that privilege. Um, Because I'm very mindful that, you know, again, going back to race, when I walk into a space, I don't have the privilege of being a white woman, but I also don't have the marginalization of walking into a room as a Black woman. Yeah. And so for me, I've really had to navigate over the past 10 to 15 years, what does all of this mean to me, especially as someone doing this work?
0: Yeah, that is so good. And I, I I would venture to say that probably all of us um, could gain value from taking inventory of just looking over our lives and identifying what sources of power and privilege we have, even if we are part of marginalized communities. Yes. You know, so like you, Jaya, I, I love how you were sharing about yourself because I often show up to conversations where we are talking about power and privilege and allyship and systems of oppression and equity. And I'm I'm often, you know, quick to say I I am a black woman, and I stand before you very privileged. I grew up in a home with both parents. I'm a, you know, uh, able body individual. I'm a, I'm a business owner. I, I'm educated. I mean, so I do think that's such an important exercise because it helps us to get proximate to the ways in which we can leverage our sources of power and privilege and use it honorably to help others along the way. And that's what you brought out, and, and I'm so grateful that you did. Um, I want to share with this community that we are rich in this conversation, but I I am not at all going to forget that I want to give you a chance to also address your questions, your curiosities, your contributions. And so momentarily, I will shift and I will invite you to do so. And if you're part of this live um, community here on Zoom, you can do so by using the raise hand feature to let me know that you want to share. And then I will spotlight you and invite you at the appropriate time to unmute yourself and share. Or if you desire to just place your questions into the chat, we are paying attention to that as well. And we will make sure we get to your questions as time allows. And if you're LinkedIn live, you can place your questions into the comment section, and those are going to be transferred over here. So while you're thinking about your questions or your curiosities and contributions, I want to go to the next question for Jaya. And I want you to... uh, and it's really a two part question. The first is, how did you find your voice in DEI? And then, how does your voice in DEI, how is it shaped by this global lens that you have?
1: Goodness, Seth, those are great questions, Nika. So, I mean, to be to be 100% candid, and I'm all about just bringing my, my full, truest self here to this stage, I'm still finding my voice. You know, I think I'm still finding my voice um, in this work. Uh, this part of what makes DE, the work of DE&I so interesting is how it is, there's it's con- there's constant evolution, there's constant challenges, there's constant learnings. We are all individually, whether we are practitioners or not on our own journeys um, yes. around this. Work. Yes. So I am learning on a daily basis. I don't think you ever arrive. I mean, I, I don't hold out that I arrive at this place of mastery around DE and I work. So I think it's constantly evolving. And what I try to do at this point in my life, at this stage in my career is just be who I am and bring that out as much as possible because I think then we can be and live our best selves. In terms of the global lens, I mean, I think this is such an important topic, irrespective of whether you work or are in a global company that has a presence all over the world, or one that might be based in a particular region. I think it's critical that we bring a global lens to this work and to the conversation. And when I say global, I really mean glocal. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the term glocal, global. Global. but the idea is that it, it essentially means localizing the global or thinking globally, acting locally. So I'll toss out another resource. Um, th- this term glocal was coined by a sociologist by the name of Ro- Roland Robertson. and mm-hmm. And Roland Robertson describes a management approach that balances the need for global strategies and practices with local adaptation. And there's a fantastic HBR article, it's called, um, Do Your Global Teams See DEI as an American Issue? I would encourage you to check it out. But what this means for DEI work is that leaders need to address it in a way that includes narratives, discussions, and solutions that are representative of local contexts. Yes, there's no one size fits all approach. And so I think we can do this by um, understanding local issues of inequality, thinking about the words and the language we use, and how the terms may or may not resonate differently in different regions. Um, recognizing cultural and historical differences and context. I remember being, when I was at the law firm, I was in Brussels at one point. And I remember when I was hearing more about their experience around race and DEI, Mm -hmm. someone told me, you have to remember the context within which you're in. Yes. And I never forget that. You really have to put yourself in the context where you are. So I think, I I like the term local because I I think, again, it's really about we have global, we may have global strategies or practices. There might be some common universal t- trends, et cetera. But at the end of the, of the day, we also have to really localize this work so that it resonates. Hello.
0: You are dropping some gems that we were able to source that article from Harvard Business Review. Um, to your global team see DEI as an American issue. We did a place that into the chat. I also wanna make sure that we give credit and, and place the resource of, Um, the person who coined the term glocal. And you did mention Mm -hmm. that. So can you just repeat that again for
1: us, please? It's sociologist Roland Robertson. And I believe he (laughs) is referencing that HBR article.
0: Okay, perfect. Awesome. So that is great. I know I'm going to go back and look at it. And you're so right. We have to think about the context of the where we are, the, the local market, the audience that we're talking about, because um, it does make a tremendous difference. Um, so I don't see any hands raised right now. So I'm going to go to my next question. Um, so I want to talk about now the fact that you, you know, you have different experiences in terms of how in which you have um, supported this work of DEI, you know, higher ed, um, law firms. And so when you think about the very Various industries. Do you see that there are significant differences in terms of how DEI should be manifested and executed, or do you believe that there are just some central tenets that should find its way across across the board? What are some of those differences, or 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 not that you're that you've yeah. seen from experience?
1: Yeah, it's probably a both and. Um, so I've worked as, as you've shared, um, Nika, as a DEI practitioner, both in higher education and then in three different professional services firms: now a law, a global law firm, global economic consulting firm, and then now a global executive search and leadership advisory firm. And while there are certainly differences in how the work is done, um, some of the key challenges and areas of focus are the same. So, I'll, as just as one example, in all of these environments that I've worked in. There has been a challenge or a focus around representation, whether it's in a law school, or whether it's in a workplace. There's a question around do we have strong representation from historically underrepresented groups, and how can we bolster that diversity. So that is a one example of an area of focus that crosses across industry, um, irrespective of of sort of the organization. Similarly. Once we have these individuals in the institution, be it at a law school again, or at a professional services organization or some other company, how are we supporting them? How are we ensuring that they have access to the opportunities and resources they need to be successful? So when I was at the law school, that's part of what we were doing. It's that whole idea, you can bring folks in the door, But if you really want them to stay and succeed and thrive and go out into the world and do great things, you need to make sure that they have the support, they have the access, that they have the community. So that's, again, similar across different industries. Third, another great example of a similarity is leadership commitment and engagement. So that's another key area of focus. How do we ensure that the leadership, because we know leadership is critical for the success of this work. And when I was at the law school, that was the case. What was the senior administration's commitment to this work? Um, Are they engaged and committed and treating this work as a strategic priority? Similarly, in all these workplaces, that is absolutely key. Um, The one area that's been a little different for me is, from the law school at least, in all of my professional services experiences, we are um, client-driven workplaces. So yeah. there's an aspect of how we work with the clients in the right. marketplace around DEI which is probably a little bit different than you know what what I was doing in the law school that's been a huge area of focus as we've seen more and more clients across different types of professional services firms demand that organizations respond um, to this sort of rise to the call to action around DEI. So that would be a difference yeah. but I think there are actually quite a few similarities. Approaches are different. You know, just because something might have worked at one company doesn't mean I'm coming in and saying, right. let's do this here, right? So the we, you really want to adapt your strategies and approach and interventions to the specific environment that you're in. But I do think there are some overarching larger areas of focus that transcend industry. Yeah, well, well
0: explained. Um, what stood out to me was how in which you talked about when you're in this the service space and you are influencing and supporting the efforts of clients that have, you know, entrusted you with an investment of dollars to say help us solve for XYZ, then um sometimes it may be a little difficult to try to impart to those outside entities, because again, you are an influencer, you're you're servicing their needs, you're supporting them. Um, this lens of DEI, especially if it's not something that's already embedded into their culture, and through their value sets and their um, pillars of, of focus. And so um, we have experienced that as well, just within the confines of, of NWC and some of our clients. Some of our clients, they're just straight organizations. And so they can help determine what that manifestation of DEI looks like. But then sometimes they may be associations or membership-based organizations, and they're just there as a key resource, right, to help influence that mindset. So it is different different how in which you may um show up in, in terms of support for those organizations. Um, so again, no hands are raised right now. I wanna I wanna talk about, and I'll preface this by saying um, that we have been exposed to a lot of different information of late about how many companies have abandoned their DEI commitments and how a lot of the talk during um, right after George Floyd's murder was was you know seemingly performative because there's not a whole lot of results to, to draw to from those commitments that were made. And then even with the economy being very uncertain, a lot of budgets have been cut and including a lot of DEI positions and those DEI budgets. And so this question is, is about sustainability and that endurance factor. And so one of the things that I read in your bio was your commitment to, when you do this work, making sure that it's long-lasting. So how do you ensure, Jaya, DEI gains are sustainable and long-lasting, especially in consideration of some of those
1: challenges that I just referenced? Yes, no. And I mean, I'm sure many of you have seen, you know, there's been mass exodus of some very yeah. um, high profile CIDOs at companies. Yeah. And it's quite uh, understandable and alarming that we're seeing folks leave for any number of reasons, whether it's because they're not seeing the kind of progress they would hope to see in decades of doing this work um, yeah. or for other reasons. And so, And I think there are a couple key things that are required to make sure this work is sustainable and long lasting within an organization. So one, and some of this I've mentioned a little bit before, one is really making sure there is that leadership commitment. I mean, I I can't underscore that enough. There really has to be that leadership commitment. One of the things that we're focused on this past year where I work is inclusive leadership and really making sure our, our sort of. 200 or so people leaders, starting with the top, our board, our global leadership team have information that they can act upon related to inclusive behaviors. And we talk a lot about curiosity, courage, and empathy. And so, Mm -hmm. and we start very intentionally at senior levels with the understanding that that influences the rest of the organization. So I think that leadership commitment and inclusive leadership and being able to not only understand what that behavior is, well, what can I do in my day to day to demonstrate those behaviors is critical. I think a second one is a strong culture of measurement and accountability. And we talk and you've talked about this, I know, I know you do this in your work all the time, but how do we measure, and use data. Um, Lily Zhang is another amazing thought leader who wrote an article I'm sure many people recently saw in HBR, I I love HBR, about how to effectively and legally use racial data for DEI. It was fascinating. And so how are we measuring our progress? How are we um, holding our leaders and ourselves accountable? Um, So I think that's really, really key. Third is I think we're at a time and point where we need to think boldly around initiatives related to inclusion. We use these words, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think we really need to be double downing on the I on inclusion. I mean, we, I say, we say at our company that if you have inclusion, diversity is the outcome. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, it's really focusing on how do we T- take bold um, measures to create cultures of inclusion. So I think, um, and I see Takiya the article by Ling- by Lily Zhang, I'm glancing yeah. at the chats as much as I can, how to effectively yeah. and legally yeah. use racial data for DEI? Um, but I think those three things are certainly a starting point. Um, and also, I mean, recognizing that A, you can't boil the ocean. I thought when I first started out this work years ago, I'm going to do it all. You can't yeah. boil the ocean. You will, brought, and so this gets to sort of the burnout piece, and how do you keep this long standing for yourself as a practitioner in this space? So not being boiling the ocean, and recognizing that there's there are absolutely things that can be done in the short term. There are short term gains, but it's also not what is it? Not a it's a marathon, not a sprint. Right. And so I think um, it's both sort of how do you maintain it and make sure it's long lasting within an organization, but also if you're the one doing the work.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm so glad that that article was shared. It was really, really rich. And Lily Zhang is actually a, a friend of our podcast. She has been on as, as mm-hmm. a guest co-host. And so I'm glad this community is getting um, a chance to review that article. Um, and you're right, bowling the ocean, you know, and I think that's a really important point right now where a lot of organizations are being challenged budget-wise. I don't want to undermine the complexity of, of CFOs and other leaders having to deal with um, you know, the the shortage of financial resources and still support yeah. equally important work, right? So I, I, I don't pretend that that's not a hard chore, but I think that for those that are just putting on the chopping block DEI and just saying, let's do away with it, that is not the approach. Maybe let's think about how can we, where can we scale back that still leads towards meaningful impact while we weather the storm to get back to a healthier state to be full blown into you know, the support work that we were putting towards um, DEI. And I think that's really critical. So Takia has a question that she placed into the chat that I'm going to present. How can you create space for leaders that are not extroverted? How can you help show the value in the leadership skills to get buy-in um, from other leaders and so yeah just going back to like the introvert extrovert conversation mm-hmm. how a lot of, um, people um, have a, a greater affinity to extroversion styles of, of showing
1: mm-hmm. up I mean I think you're thank you for that question Tiki. I think there's a couple things that um, can be done I think one there's a real role for allies to play in the in, in creating space and conversation for individuals with differing personality styles. And I think um, that's both allies, but also this goes back to inclusive leadership. If you are a leader within an organization and you manage a team and you see that there are certain people who sort of take up a lot of the airtime or people who don't, what are some ways that you as a leader um, can sort of uplift, empower, shine a light on those who might not be as vocal? And I'm not necessarily suggesting calling them in in a meeting, but perhaps checking in afterwards, perhaps making sure you give the agenda out in advance because we know introverts for often, oftentimes like to process and know what's about to happen. So I think part of it goes to um, being an inclusive leader. If you are in a leadership role and have the ability to influence that sphere of influence or that sphere, you have the ability to influence that sphere that you're in. Um, and then also with, relatedly, they add the role of allies. So me as an introvert, I can be an ally to my fellow introverts and ambroverts. I can you know, make sure that I am mindful of their voice and their presence and my, what might be some ways that they're comfortable in vocalizing their thoughts or feelings. So I think it's um, that's certainly a piece of it. I think another thing is just having the conversation. I don't think we talk, like you were saying, Nika, I don't think we talk a lot about in the workplace about yeah. personality. And personality styles. So part of it is even just creating space to acknowledge these different differences and how there are strengths in each one of them. There's no one being better than the other. They're all strengths and they're all ways that we can sort of Um, really support all of our colleagues coming from all these different personality types and backgrounds. We need them all in in the setting, right? We We need all of these differences. So I think between education and starting the conversation and allyship and inclusive leadership, those are all some ways to get started on, you know, doing more to recognize those of us who are more of the ambivert introverts.
0: That is really good. And there are a number of um, assessments and tools that organizations, which I think about, you know, Gallup strength finders. I think about the whole brain thinking. Um, I think about this. I mean, there's so many um, that sometimes it gets a little complicated to try to decipher which one may be best for, you know, a particular organization. But to your point, there are tools and assessments to help people to understand how to best interact how to get the most out of those relationships. And I think that's really valuable um, because again, that is also a part of a, a really important part of dimensions of diversity is how how we lead, how we show up, how we like to be communicated with, how we interact. And I, I think that um, we all have to make sure we're keeping that top of mind. I love the practicality of the tools that you shared. I think sometimes even thinking about my book, Inclusion Uncomplicated, we overcomplicate. Mm-hmm. You just said something as simple as let's send an agenda or maybe the materials for review. <laughs> before the meeting. How hard is that? It's not hard at all. Again, people process differently. They may need time to kind of formulate, how do I want to show up? What do I want to ask or contribute? And they can do that if they have the information in advance. How are we leaving space for others to to chime in when there are personalities that can overshadow a conversation and just be that ally to bring those voices in? So I'm big on making DEI practical because I think that's what's going to help separate those um, individuals leaders and organizations that are effective at sustaining this work versus those that are not. We can't make this hard.
1: Okay. Yep. So we're going and I would to also say, yeah. yeah. No, and I would also say each and every one of us has a role to play, irrespective yes. of our title or where we sit within an organization, what role we have, who we report to, each of us has a role to play within our own spheres of influence. We all have a sphere of influence. And I think this is so important to recognize and acknowledge that we can, you know, uh, be a part of the change that we want to see, no matter where we sit um, or what title we may hold or role we have. So well stated,
0: so well stated. this work belongs to all of us. And um mm-hmm. it's just a matter of finding finding where we best can lend support. To help ensure that this work gets um, continued in really effective ways, um, so I want to kind of end with you sharing your thoughts on where where would you like to see the field of DEI go in the future? And as you think about that vision, right? Do you think we're headed in the right direction?
1: Oh goodness! <laughs> big question. Um, I know it's such a big question. I mean. I have to hold on to hope. Um, We all know that there is a lot going on in the world, in the United States alone, you know, whether it's affirmative action, whether it's the attack on LGBTQ plus rights and everything else, um, there is so much going on. So it's, it's natural to be disheartened and disappointed that at many instances, it feels like we are going back in time. Um, I have to be hopeful a, for me to do this work. And also because I have two young girls and we have a next generation of people coming into this world. I mean, people ask me around the whole time of the affirmative action, you know, case people were asking me how do? why am I still doing this? How do I keep doing this? And I said, I have to do it because of my children and the next generation and hope that they will have a better world to live in. Um, in terms of the future, I mean, I really do hope we're moving in the direction where DEI is embedded across organizations. You know, most companies now, hopefully, have a DEI function, or when maybe it's housed within the HR or people function, but there's a DEI role. I would love in the future to be frank if we were all out of, if there was no such thing as a DEI practitioner, that we did not exist because it was so entrenched in the organization that people leaders, other leaders, people, it was just the part of the fabric of the organization, essentially running us, people like me, and like you Nika, out of business. I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime or maybe in uh, you know the next one for others, but really that getting to a place where it's such a part of the fabric of an institution that it is not seen as this separate other thing. It's not an afterthought. It's not put in this corner or bucket, but it's, it's truly we've redesigned our institutions. We know that they're, they weren't built for everyone. We've redesigned them. We've looked at not only behaviors, but also systems and processes. So I love to hope that that is the direction we're going in. We have a, we've made quite a few strides in some areas. We have so much more to do and it's a journey. Um, so in, I guess keeping us right on time. That's my, la- those that are my is beautiful. last. That is beautiful.
0: And what a great way to end on this notion of hope. Let's, let's do, do our best to try to operate from a place of strength as champions and ambassadors of this work and not from a place of defeat. And um, I love that message that you're leaving us with. Thank you so much for being here with us today. It was such a rich conversation and I know that this audience got a lot of value from it. Um, We will be sharing this out. If you found this to be useful, make sure that you tell your friends to um, catch catch the podcast or even the replay and um, hope you all have a great and safe um, weekend. Thank you so much, Jaya, for being here.
1: Thank you, Nika. Thank you, Nika and team, and to all of you for joining this. Really appreciate it.